Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 20. Ephesians 3, 8 through 20. The title of the message is, What's Next? What's Next? Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light the administration of the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you not become discouraged about my tribulations on your behalf, since they are for your glory. For this reason, I bend my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the height, and the breadth, and, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Three things in this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, the vision for the church. Two, the hope for the church. And then three, what it means for the church to go beyond. Um, excuse me, vision for the church, prayer for the church, and beyond is a hope for the church. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. It is a unique congregation. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, different than the church at Jerusalem. Now, Paul had a different makeup on the inside of him. God had crafted him after his spiritual rebirth differently than he had crafted some others. Not that others didn't have an opportunity to come to the same kind of formation, But he was open to things that others were not. And the unusual thing is that his openness is a surprise. Nobody was staunchly more Jewish than him. He was the Jew of Jews. Prided himself on being a Pharisee. Calls himself in the book of Philippians, son of a Pharisee. A man who was given orders by the chief priest at the age of somewhere around 28 to 30 to be the primary persecutor and apprehender of everybody who called himself a Christian. It was his job in the promised land to cleanse the promised land of all the the people who believed like us. That was his primary job. And he thought he was doing God a favor every day of his life. The church of Jerusalem was a beautiful church. It was the mama. It was was the, 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 the beginnings of everything that would be that we enjoy today. And nobody would ever want to criticize that because they had the greatest staff in history. Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, all the disciples, save Judas. It was a great, where are you going to get a better staff than that? Where are you going to get a better staff? I mean, like, wow, history's greatest church staff. 
And then on top of that, they had like 20,000 people in 10 years. That's what we estimate the church grew to. 3,000 in one day, in one day. And then it grew to 5,000 a couple of chapters later. And then it just says the church kept increasing and increasing and increasing. Like, wow, greatest church ever. None better. One difference from the idea that was in the church in Jerusalem to the idea that Paul got in his formation of ministry. The church of Jerusalem was all Jewish. Everybody in it had a Jewish background. They may have been Hellenistic Jews, meaning born not in Jerusalem or in the Promised Land, spoke primarily another language, but they were Jewish in the religion and in their heritage. No Gentiles at all are recorded in the church in Jerusalem in the entire Bible. None. Nobody like us. Paul had something different. We don't know where he got it from. We just know he got it. And this is what he is trying to explain to the church at Ephesus. To me, the very least of all the saints, this idea about grafting Gentiles, people that don't know anything about the law, their history cannot include Abraham. David was not their hero. He was the enemy. To the Gentiles, David killed their grandfather, Goliath. Nobody in Israel's history would be considered somebody that anybody in the Gentile community in that area would enjoy being related to. Nobody, because Israel vanquished everybody in the promised land or moved them out. And and Paul had this idea that they were supposed to now be included in the inheritance. If you take out all the exhortations that are about what it means for Jew and Gentile to get together in the book of Ephesians, you'd have about 25 verses. It's six chapters. But you wouldn't have much. Most of the the book is about how people who are very different in their background, in their heritage, in their experience are supposed to be one. We're not talking about clones. We're not talking about sameness. We're talking about unity, not unanimity. Being able to allow your differences to bring increase to one another so that value is added by somebody who is not like you. Thus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that God's idea was to bring the Jew and the Gentile together and to break down, quote, the dividing wall between the two and make the two one. This staunch Jewish traditionalist had come to an insight. He calls himself the least of the apostles, lest he be, he, he be interpreted as being somebody who had a more important revelation. It was just a different revelation because he doesn't want to in any way kind of bash homogeneity, homogenous churches, mono-ethnic communities. He didn't want to do that. That's not a good idea. The church in Jerusalem was a church in Jerusalem because everybody in Jerusalem was Jewish. Primarily, that's why what it was. And, and, And the Romans weren't even interested in being a part who happened to rule there. If, I, I've been to, to a bunch of nations. Nigeria is one of them. Been there three times. Everybody in the church is a black Nigerian. Everybody. I've been to Korea. Everybody in the church is a Korean. I've been to Latin America. Everybody in the church is Latin American. 
Nothing wrong with homogeneity. I'm glad God is reaching people every place. The difference is that Paul was supposed to be the guy that was to take this gospel to the world. Why? Because God was interested in more than just Abraham. He was interested in Adam. Not just Abraham. Now, Abraham was the man through whom all the promises would come. The law would come. Generations later, the Messiah would come. The monarchy would come. All the prophets would come. Everybody was coming through Abraham. And, and, and because Abraham is such a central figure and because God started his promise with Abraham, at least funneled down his promise to Abraham, the Jews began to think this, and I don't blame them for it. Not only are we the first, we're the best. We are not just primary, we're God's only. He ain't interested in anybody else, just us. Let me give you some proof. He gave us this land and told us to kick everybody else, just, everybody else out, just us. He didn't send any other prophets from any other nation. He birthed the prophets in our land, just us. And so they had some degree of historical verification that somehow they were right. But they were wrong because they didn't view the entire idea about God. Where did the first promise start? Where did it start? Adam and Eve blew it. Did something we're supposed to do. God showed up on the scene, said, what happened? Why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat? Uh, yeah, but it was her fault. Boy, they needed some marriage counseling that day, I'm telling you. <laughs> he threw her under the bus to where both axles hit her. It was a bad day. Afterwards, God said this. Eve, you're going you're to bear children, but it's going to be hard. But the boy you bear, he's going to crush that serpent's head. His heel will be bruised, but it will be the end of him. That was the promise to Adam, not just Abraham. So God is interested in Adam, which includes us. I, I, I know you probably confused me with being Jewish. <laughs> but I have no Jewish lineage. 23 in me tells me that. No Jewish lineage in me at all. Abraham has nothing to do with me. But God cared about me. He loves the world. When Jesus said... God so loved, he didn't say the Jews. John 3.16 is not about the Jews. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Paul had an idea bigger than just Jerusalem. And he said, I'm the least of the saints. Those guys are amazing. What they've done is outstanding. I love Peter. I love James. They are astounding human beings. I can't even be considered to be in the roll call when you call apostles. I don't know why God did this with me, but he did it with me and gave me the privilege of now talking about this revelation I got from heaven so that the entire world can understand who Jesus Christ was. He gave it to me. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church. God had a wisdom that he wanted to proclaim. And, 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 the, and the places to which it needs to be proclaimed, at least he says here, are to the principalities and powers in the air. In the heavenlies. Now there's no question 
that when we begin to proclaim what God's will is to that, that it shakes the heavens behind the scenes, the things you can't see, so that things reverberate on the earth. Things begin to change. You may not understand. Jesus sent the 70 disciples out, short-term missions trip. It was about five months before he was going to be crucified and rise again. The disciples hadn't gotten much of anything right to this point. It had been about three years of being with Jesus, and they had, they, had, they, they, had, they had repeated the first grade six times. They just didn't get anything right. And I mean, Jesus was, it, he, he was, he was five months away. And, his, and it, now he was almighty God, so worry never concerned him. He'd never feared. But his humanity had to at least ask, did I make the wrong choice? These jokers ain't getting nothing right. I mean, they just figured out who I am last week. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That happened in the third year of his ministry. They'd been with him a while. He went up on the mountain, prayed. Peter, James, John were with him. Transfiguration, wow. In the valley, the rest of the disciples were. A guy has a, a young man, his son gets, gets absolutely taken over by a demonic spirit. The demonic spirit throws him into the fire. It's a mess. And the man asks the disciples who had been with Jesus now about two and a half years, says, can you please deal with this? Help my son. The disciples don't do a thing right. They probably try, but nothing happens. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He said, I asked your disciples, but they couldn't help me. Jesus looks at him and says, mm. Mm. come here, boy. Cast the devil out, the boy's fine. And the disciples said, why couldn't we do that? He says, because y'all ain't spiritual enough. You just don't have it yet. He said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. You haven't gone deep enough yet in God to figure out how in the world the power can channel through you to help somebody. They hadn't figured out anything much like us. I'm, I'm not being overly critical. I know where they've lived. <laughs> I know where they've lived. I've failed more than I've succeeded. And I know in heaven, every once in a while, Jesus has had to say, Lord, do we choose the right dude? We got the right fellow. I'm just not quite sure this is going to work out. Anthropomorphically speaking. Jesus is looking at these disciples saying, we've got five months left. They've got to get something right. Sends them out, says, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, freely receive, freely. Go. They come back, and the only thing they say is that, Lord, the demons were subject to us in your name. They don't say they cast out devils, cleanse the lepers. They probably did all that. But the thing that impressed them the most it's how the enemy was subjected to them. At that, Jesus rejoices. It says, literally, he rejoiced greatly. In the Greek, that phrase means he danced in the spirit. It's the only time it's used in all of the Gospels about what Jesus did. The only time. Why? Because he realized this. And there are a number of reasons why he rejoiced, and I don't have time to go into all of them. But one of them was... If you were able to see the devil bound, that you have authority over him, everything that's messed up in the world falls under that. So you got it now. When we proclaim to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God, stuff happens in the earth with respect to authority in every place else. He says, I 
have been given the authority and the, the privilege of seeing the church beginning to explain, profoundly proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in heavenly realms. And the word manifold is the word polypoikolos in Greek. Now, the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. But as the world became more Greek as a result of Alexander the Great's conquest, everybody spoke Greek. And so the, the stewards of the Old Testament, somewhere in the 300 BCs, began to say, we probably ought to figure out how to make this Old Testament Hebrew legible. And they translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. In that, in that translation, we see the word polypoikolos used one time. And it was in reference to Joseph's coat of many colors that he received from his dad. That Joseph's coat, which favored him above, above all of his brothers, was called polypoikolos. So let's now see what Paul was trying to convey, knowing that he was supposed to reach Gentiles. I, the very least of all the apostles, was given this mystery that I might proclaim through the church the many-colored wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. We established this congregation on the basis of making sure whoever was leading it, and at the time, at some point, it became me, that whoever was leading it, the congregation wouldn't look like him. I said, God, if you give me the privilege of pastoring, please let it be a multi-ethnic church. Let it look something like glory. It's intentional that we are the way that we are. It didn't happen by accident. We architected it this way. Why? Because there's something we're supposed to proclaim other than just the gospel to people that when we walk in this room, we're saying something to the heavenlies. It may not work any place else. Division, hatred, bitterness, bigotry, it may not work any place else, but it does work here. Because Jesus planned it this way, and if we will execute his plan, we can see change from here to there. Are you listening to me? This was the church at Ephesus. And he said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Boy, you, you, when you build a church like this, you got to pray. You got to pray. My, my, my son, who's now the pastor of the Chantilly congregation, and AJ, who is the executive pastor, decided they wanted to, during the pandemic, literally spice up the environment by, by having me do the spice challenge. You old folks, you don't know what I'm talking about, but all the young people do. You take wings and you increase the level of Scovilles on the wings. And Scovilles are the, the, the amount of, of spice that is added to a particular sauce. You increase it every time you bite into a wing. You start off with about two million, which is Texas Peak. Y'all can do that. And then you go to the one where you have to go to the hospital. And they said, Dad, it's boring out there. I mean, you're doing a whole lot of devotionals online. It's great. It's great. You're going through the Bible. It's fine. But, but let's do something fun. I said, no. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I said, Dad, it'll be great. I said, no. And somehow I wound up in the room with all these wings. 
And by the end of it, there were seven. By the end of it, it's really embarrassing. I was on the ground crawling, <laughs> begging for Jesus to take me. <laughs> Lord, now's a really good time. I don't know why I did this to myself. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'll never listen to my son again. It was horrible. When you build a church that's multi-ethnic, you are intentionally adding Scovilles. It's hard enough just building a church. Just building a church monoethnically. You got problems. It's hard for the church to be in unity even when the people have the same experience, same background. Understand the same thing the same way. It's a whole different thing when you try to intentionally bring people that don't have the same experience, don't have the same background, and may not even like one another sociologically. Have problems with people in that people group. Let me just bring it down to a very basic level. How do you do a potluck dinner? I mean, if you're a Jew and you bring in Gentiles, <laughs> you got a dietary law. You can't eat shrimp. You can't eat pork. You can't eat lobster. Everything's got to be prepared to kosher way. Oh, I come in the room. I'm bringing chitlins. <laughs> I'm bringing all kinds of stuff. I'm happy. Hey, I came. I came to serve you. And the Jews are going, ah! You're bringing in elements that don't mix. And now you're demanding that everybody get along in the non-mixing. Paul said, the human experience must have this in it so that we grow together. Sameness is not the, the goal. Unity is the goal. And what we do when we are together and we're different is that we practice unity on a regular basis. Church is practice, y'all. Because if you can't figure out how to love me, who's trying to love you back? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying. People say, I don't want to go to church. Those people are hypocrites. I said, well, at least they try. <laughs> I mean, they're showing up every week because they're trying. They may not be great. I get it. They might be bad at what they're doing, but they're trying. Your folk, the folk you hang out with, they ain't even trying. This is practice. Because if you can't get it right with people who are trying, Jesus said, love your enemies. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? And what we do is we make it even more difficult. We raise the, 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 the idea of what it means for you to, to develop character at a different level. Develop patience at a different level. Love at a different level. Preference at a different level. Meaning you prefer others' needs above your own. Understanding at a different level. Learning how to speak to one another in ways that are uncomfortable because you can't be normal. Because your normal has been based on your own societal norm, societal norms. But when you come into somebody else's societal norms, what you would normally say there may not fit over here. And you're, you feel comfortable with the people you've always grown up with, but now you enter into a realm where, oh, I don't know exactly what to call them. Hmm. I don't know what to say to them. Can, can I talk about food? No, don't talk about food. Don't talk about, don't, no, no, don't characterize them by food. Don't do that. But I love greens and they love greens. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I love watermelon. They love water. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Do not say that. Why? Culture. Culture. Really important. You have to learn some things. Everybody gets upgraded in their degree of understanding and their tolerance and their patience and their acceptance of things they may not even like. Simply because you don't approve doesn't mean you can't accept. 
There are a lot of things I don't approve of that people do, but it has nothing to do with how much I accept them. That's the way God is with us. And that's the way you need to be, by the way, just as a parenting lesson, that's the way you need to be with your kids. 90% of the stuff they do, you won't approve of. But it has nothing to do with how much you accept them. You love them unconditionally. And the more you disapprove, the more you need to show your acceptance. Are you listening to me? Because if you don't, if you don't overbalance the acceptance when you, when you have to overbalance the disapproval, they will begin to think you don't love them. Hmm. I'm on something else. And he said, once we make this known, I pray because the prayer allows me the privilege of accessing information that needs to be downloaded to the church. I pray that you would understand how much God loves you. Because when you understand how much God loves you, then you can understand how much you need to love others. No, hear me. Not that you need to love others. You know that. How much you need to love others. You understand how much you need to love others by how much God has loved you. And you understand how much God has loved you when you understand the height, the length, the depth, the width. You understand what it took to get you right. And to me, the people, the, the person who, who deserved not to be right most, every day I understand how much I get greater insight into how much it costs just to get Brent right. And it, it mandates, it tempers my soul against all those people who may not like me. And if you lead anything, the list is going to grow for people who don't like you, mad at you, misunderstand you, mistakes you've made they will never forgive. The list grows because you're the point. And there are a whole bunch of people who treat you bad. The list grows. And you have to understand more about how much God loved you. So you can, you can transfer that to somebody else who doesn't love you. And to know the love of Christ, <laughs> which surpasses knowledge. How you do that? I mean, that phrase doesn't even make any sense. And Paul knows it when he writes it. This Greek doesn't make sense. How do you know God who's unknowable? How? And he's intentionally making it a double superlative, a super superlative, to make people understand that as much as you think you know about God, there is that much and infinitely more you don't. He is so much bigger than whatever can fit in your brain. And that ought to make you happy. Rather than getting frustrated that somehow you can't figure it all out. Why in the world did God let that happen? I mean, if he's a loving God, why in the world did he let bad stuff happen to good people? There are no new questions, by the way. 
None. And I'm, I have answers to all of them. But they won't satisfy you if you're not interested in truth. We, when we come to the limits of our understanding, almost reflexively begin to say, he either isn't real or he doesn't care or he's not God. Rather than, he's so much bigger than what I know. He's so much broader than what I can feel. And coming to the end of our understanding, and I mean coming to the end of our understanding with respect to knowledge, meaning you work as hard as you possibly can. You make your brain get tired so that you have exhausted all of your intellectual capacity. And when you get there, having thumbed through every passage of scripture you can find, talking to theologians, your pastor, praying, meditating after you get there, and you cannot figure out why in the world all this doesn't make sense to your brain, that's when you do this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why? Because that proves he's bigger and he's got a better plan than you. How's your plan worked out, by the way? <laughs> I mean, your plan drove you to church. <laughs> Even if it succeeded, it wasn't enough. Even if you got the pot at the end of the rainbow, it wasn't enough. Because there is nothing in this world that can replace the presence of God that is created to be in your soul. It's a, it's a, it's a, a God-shaped hole. No money, no girlfriend, no wife, no child, no career opportunity can fill that spot. Only God. So he says this, know him as much as you can. But be really happy that he's infinite. Be really happy that he's eternal. You know infinite means that there's no end. It's, it's a mathematical term, a scientific term. And not only does it, does it mean it, there's no end to the space, but in, in terms of time, there's no end to who he is, whether before or beginning. Eternal, same difference, except in terms of specifically time. This, this is our God, and it gives me great encouragement that he's bigger than me because he knows the, the, the end from the beginning. And if it's not good now and I stay with him and I trust him, he's going to help me get to the place where I can praise him at the end. And if I, can, if I know I'm going to praise him at the end, I might as well do it now. To know him who surpasses knowledge. And now, to him, what's next? This congregation is everything I just said. It's black, it's white, it's Latino, it's Asian. Young, old, male, female. It's hard to get more diverse than the people in this room. And I congratulate you because it's not easy doing this. I congratulate you. Thank you for enduring with the process to produce something that tells the heavenlies, watch out, because the will of God is being done in extraordinary ways in GCC's thoroughly. Thank you, and being a witness to the world. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Mary, for building this way. Thank you. But what's next? Now to him, now that you've got this, it's beautiful. 
But this isn't the goal. This is an on-the-way goal. This is not the goal. Now to him, Church of Ephesus, now that you've got the unity thing down, now you've got the relationship thing down, now you've got the sociological thing down, Jews and Gentiles hanging out together. Wow, that's great. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond, there's more. There is so much. We still have to win a city. We got to figure out how to, I mean, this sanctuary seats about what? 300, Eddie? 300. Hmm. Sterling has about 27,000 people. Where are they going to fit? Where are we going to put them? <laughs> Where? Now to him who can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you can ask or think. You got to think big. You can't think you've arrived. You can't think, wow, look at this. This is wonderful. We are an example of biblical unity. What God thought about when he thought about creating the church. This is amazing and I'm a part of it. Woo! There are so many people who aren't. I was talking with the ministry team as I closed of a, lot, of, a, of a congregation that was going through some difficulty and they were more focused on the people who were there or beginning to leave because they were going through difficulty. And, and, and they were trying to figure out how to get everybody to stay. And I said, do it. Do your best. But reality is many people are going to leave because the environment is just not conducive for sheep. The, the waters are not still. Sheep generally only drink from still waters. That's why the writer David in Psalm 23 says, the Lord leads me to still waters. If the water's running, if it's a, if, if it's a moving river, sheep actually believe they'll drown if they, they put their snout in it. They won't drink. It's got to be a pond. Still water. I said, people will leave. Only the most committed are going to stay, and that's historically the way it happens when churches go through difficulty. I said, but <clears throat> do what you can to try to get people to stay, love on them, help them, strengthen them, pray for them. But let's begin to think about the people who aren't here, what we are going to build to bring them. The sanctuary needs to be full. And if we only focus on trying to keep those who are with us, we're going to miss out on what we can be and the people that need to be here. Oh, I love the fact of, of who we are and the numbers of people that we've been able to reach. It's really neat. God has just blessed us and treated us better than we deserve. But I also realize that the census in 2020 said the metropolitan area was 6.8 million people. And less than 15% of those, especially during the pandemic, regularly went to church. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 35% identified as being Christian. That means the majority of the people out there either aren't interested in what we're doing in here or do not care about God. What's next? We got to dream big, big. Figure out how to help win Sterling. Northern Virginia Community College. What it means to reach out to Leesburg down the way. Figure out how to do that. And what God will do. Once you get your, your strategic plan together, and, and whether it's you individually or this congregation corporately, once you get your plan together, God will do way beyond what you thought. 31 years ago when I became senior pastor of this congregation, 
We were in a lot of trouble. JC was here. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Everybody was looking at one another every Sunday thinking, you going to be here next week? <laughs> Without going into details, it wasn't fun. But I was a pastor, and I had to figure it out. And my goal was this. We had 53 people. Uh, that included babies. <clears throat> um, and, and, and for the most part, my kids made up the, the, the youth group. It was, it was that small. It was that small. And it, was that, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't healthy. But I had some people who really loved me and believed that God could do something through our congregation. So they stayed together. And people like JC, just thanks could never be enough. Never be enough. Never. But, but my goals weren't very high. I just wanted to make sure I could build a, a congregation that was uh, easy for my mother to explain to all of her friends about what I was doing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. When I came here in 82, all her friends that were my, called my aunts, auntie this, auntie, all her really close friends, and babysat me. When I was, so what's Brett doing now? Well, he's in Washington. Oh, really? Well, what's he doing in Washington? Well, he's at Howard University. Oh, he's, he's hired by the school? Not exactly. <laughs> Well, what's he doing? Well, he's reaching out as a campus minister to students. Oh, he's in the chapel program. Not exactly. <laughs> but he's, establish he's establishing a student group on campus. Oh, he was invited to do that. Not exactly. She couldn't figure out what to say. All I wanted to do is give her an easy line back, a response. He's pastor in the church. That's all you hear. That was my goal. And God has done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that I could ask or think. He'll do that for you if you stay on the road. Because if you follow the, the prescription of, of, of living and and producing what he says is the kind of church that will lead you to this, you can't help but get there. There's greatness in store for this house. This is your grand opening. Gosh, in two years, you'll have two or three services like this. Make yourself available to the community in ways that are unusual and watch how God will do so much more than you plan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and grace. Inspire this congregation to become what you want it to be. Is there anybody this morning who has yet to give their heart to Christ? Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be. And today you want to make a change. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Anybody at all. Maybe you're online and you realize... I'm not right with God, and you want to get right with God today. I want to pray for you as well. Anybody, raise your hand in the room. All right, you online, pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I have lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. 
thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, go down to the box, uh, the chat box there. There's a little box at the end of it. Check that. Somebody will be in contact with you about the decision you made. All we want you to do is be successful with what you just prayed. Church, love you much. Proud of you. Congratulations. And there's so much more to come.